0: Well, again, good morning and welcome back. I missed you. I'm so glad that you're here. And here we are beginning this series, Dear God, and I want you to direct your attention to the right side of the room, my left, where we have these three art panels, Ask, Seek, and Knock. It really is appropriate that we have begun our ministry season this way, celebrating 20 years. When we first started a church, we were really thinking through the idea that Jesus was incredibly clear. He wanted people to ask and to seek and to knock. And he was wanting that because he wanted to reveal to us that his Father in Heaven wanted to be revealed to us, to anyone who would ask and seek and knock. He wanted askers and seekers and knockers. And so because of that, we realize we're going to be a a church that calls itself after the name of Jesus. We should be a safe place for people to do just that. So this series kind of epitomizes uh, that whole thing. And the first question, the first hard question that someone might ask of God is simply this. Why are Christians so, and then insert your negative word here? Why are Christians so judgmental? Why are Christians so hypocritical? Why are Christians so mean or superior or unkind? Or, just to put it another way, the title of the, the week uh, Dear God, Save Me from Your Followers. Right? And you've heard somebody say that, and maybe you've said that before at some point. It's a big deal, right? Um, I, got out, I dusted off my notes for my original talk on this subject, and in 1996, uh, the image in everyone's mind, which I opened my, my sermon with, was this guy, uh, Michael Griffin. And what was he famous for? You probably don't even remember it anymore, 20 years ago. He was famous for shooting an abortion doctor in the name of Jesus. So when it came to Christians behaving badly, this was the guy on everybody's mind. And now I think to myself, what what, what image is on everybody's mind today? It might be uh, this gal right here. Uh, this is the county clerk that everyone's thinking about, who unilaterally took it upon herself to act against the Supreme Court ruling, And again, it was in Jesus' name. She's a hero to a lot of people in the church. Uh, Outside the church, probably not so much. This is uh, kind of a a lingering issue, isn't it? What does it say that after 20 years, the reputation of Christians outside the church is mean, judgmental, hypocritical, has not really diminished? Now, let's just kind of, uh, you know, poll it and ask what the damage has been, uh, what the damage has done by people who uh, do bad things in the name of Jesus. How many of you could say this morning that you have had a negative experience with either Christian or churches that it deeply affected you in your spiritual journey at some point in time? Like most of the people in this room, if not all. It's a big deal, right? This is a big deal. So in the church, we shouldn't minimize the damage done uh, to people by other people acting in Jesus' name. But beyond like a mere apology and, you know, the Catholic Church has offered some apologies for some particular things, um, how should the church respond? Well, today, here's what I want us to do. I want us to go back to the Bible because there in the Scripture, in the middle of the first century, when the teachings of Jesus were being collated by the apostles of Jesus, uh, we realized that this idea of Christians behaving badly was already a thing. And because it was already a thing, the, uh, the leaders of the church were already chiming in on it, telling the church kind of how to respond. And so um, here's what I want us to begin with. Here's Peter, the guy who walked and talked with Jesus for three years, and he writes a letter to a church. And he says, at the end of the letter, or near the end of the letter, he says, summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, no exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm, instead, bless. That's your job to bless. You're uh, you'll be a blessing and you'll also get a blessing. Uh, and by the way, when I put MSG on that, just for those of you, that doesn't mean the, um, the preservatives in the scripture. Right? That's that's a, that's a translation. OK, so it's the message translation. Now, now, when you when you hear that, that's a summary from an apostle of Jesus of what it means to live the way Jesus called us to live. That's what that is. And when you look at that, you realize that not all Christians uh, live like that. Right? But what if we did? What if every Christian lived like this? Loving each other like brothers and sisters, having compassion on others, being humble, never paying back evil, but being a blessing. Um, we'd probably never hear anybody say, Dear Jesus, save me from somebody who lives like that. We'd probably never hear that, would we? Uh, and yet, here's the surprising thing. We're going to keep reading in this passage the very next verse because Peter will tell us next that um, this is how Christians should all live, and yet it's not an ironclad guarantee that they will escape criticism if they live this way. If everybody who called Jesus their Lord lived like this, that is not a guarantee that everyone will think you're just swimming in awesome sauce. Here's the very next thing that Peter writes. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Makes sense? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it, so don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Now, I want you to notice the dichotomy. Did you catch it? Very serious dichotomy here. At first, he's like, look, if you live like Jesus, the way I just told you to live in the prior verses, uh, I'm telling you that mostly people are going to think that you're okay. Who would want to resist that? Who would want to harm you if you do awesome stuff like that? No one's going to call you a hypocrite or think that Christianity is false if it turns out people who live this beautiful way, compassionately, humbly, not retaliatory, being a blessing and all that kind of stuff, right? And yet, he catches himself right after he says that, next verse, but even if you do suffer for doing that stuff, God will reward you. So as much as living like Jesus should eliminate all charges of hypocrisy and accusations of meanness and judgmentalism and all that stuff, it will never eliminate all such charges, so says Peter. So then look at what he says next. Remember, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. It's like you've got these two options in front of you, and it's not whether you suffer or not. If you live Jesus' way, you're going to suffer sometime directly for it if you don't live jesus way you're going to suffer it's pretty much a guarantee because you're going to live like a jerk so so you've got these two options right you're going to suffer and peter uh, peter's really clear and just you know which one to choose there right choose the suffering for doing the right stuff instead of for the wrong stuff which some christians do they suffer because they've done something wrong because they've lived wrongly they've lived outside of jesus way okay so there it is that seems really pretty simple doesn't it very profound and that's why the rest of our time this morning i I want to draw out the subtle wisdom in these verses see when christians behave badly we have an emotional reaction to that. that that becomes very emotional that doesn't come from a rational place not always right we just know that some bible thumper said something bad to your kid at school someday and now all christians are bad And Christianity is clearly false, okay? So before you jump to that emotional conclusion, Peter is asking you to think subtly about this. And when you begin to think subtly about things, you begin to use your mind, and then you start defining things instead of just jumping to conclusions. So let's do that. Let's define three things when it comes to Christians' behaving badly. Number one, let's define bad behavior. That's the first thing we should do, right? Well, what, what actually constitutes bad behavior that should be rightly censored or criticized now notice that just because someone who's not part of the church might call you a know-nothing uneducated homophobic judgmental joyless prig and that's the word with the G at the end okay uh just because they might accuse you of that doesn't mean necessarily that you did anything wrong just because you're accused of it doesn't mean you did anything wrong right See, the follower of Jesus, she doesn't define her behaviors by what her neighbor thinks is cool, uh, whether her neighbor thinks she's awesome, lovely, cool, hip, and kind. No, no, no. She's defining good behavior by Jesus. She's defining good behavior by his teachings, his life, his example. And Peter will acknowledge that you might actually do that stuff and still suffer. He'll say it again. Next chapter, same discussion. 1 Peter chapter 4. Of course, your uh, former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, they, so they slander you. So you tell me what the word slander means. Think about that for a second. Define the word slander. Slander is an accusation of something negative that's not true. Right? That's what slander is. Slander is an accusation, but it's not a true accusation. Now. You might be just incredulous at this. You might say, no, Rick, there's no way. How could a person ever live uh, the Jesus way of life, described here by his apostle Peter, such a beautiful description, right? How could someone live that way, and then people would actually criticize them as being stupid, wicked, judgmental, hypocritical, or whatever? That would never happen. Friend, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. I'll give you two examples, okay? One is a fictional example. And another is non-fictional. Anyone know who this is? Right. So give me the name. Who's the the name of the guy? Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Right. And Ned is explicitly known as an evangelical Christian. And he's Matt Greening's way of poking fun at the church every week on The Simpsons episode. Right. Now. Granted, Matt does some, or sorry, not Matt, but uh, Ned does some things that are mockable and he is mocked for them. And he said some dumb stuff. He doesn't have much use for science. He goes to Christian camps to learn how to Bible thump the heathen, quote unquote. Uh, he says stuff like, I've done everything the Bible says, even the stuff that contradicts the other stuff. Okay, so that's kind of dumb. That's mockable. He also uh, a self-appointed watchdog of the horror of free expression. Okay, so he said some mockable stuff. And yet, look at his life. On the show... His sons, Ron and Todd, love and respect him. His home, unlike the Simpsons, is a happy one. He's a devoted husband with a great marriage uh, until they killed off his wife in the weirdest way. Uh, Ned really believes in a real God. He's sincere. I mean, he's not faking it. Ned is also deeply immersed in good works. Listen to this. Beginning with the random donation of one kidney and one lung. Can you donate a lung and still live? But he did that just out of the goodness of his heart. He had volunteers at a foster home, hospital soup kitchens, and a homeless shelter. He ties to his church and two or three others just to be safe. Oakley, doakley. He's guileless. He's pure in heart. He loves his enemies, and he turns the other cheek. Just ask Homer. He attributes his youthful appearance at 60 to the three Cs clean living, chewing thoroughly, and a daily dose of vitamin chert. I mean, So there he is, right? There's Ned Flanders. Now, how does Homer feel about a guy like that? Well, you know, if you watched the show, you know, if you're living under a rock for the past 25 years, you may not know this, but Homer doesn't think much of Ned at all. Here are the things. He calls him a goody two-shoes. He calls him a loser. He calls him a judgmental prude. If Homer were here today, he might say, dear Jesus, save me from your followers like Ned Flanders well, wait a minute, I mean, Ned, he's he's all right, isn't he? There was a Christianity Today article about 10 years back that said three cheers for Ned Flanders because some of these things that I just read for you this morning. So when you hear another story of a Christian behaving badly, first we need to define bad behavior. See, sometimes, Peter says, if you live Jesus' way, mostly people will think thumbs up. Sometimes they're going to slander you. And that will happen. Now you say, oh, Rick, okay, nice example, but that's total fiction. If Christians really lived Jesus' way, described by Peter in this beautiful verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, they would never get so much ugly press as being judgmental and closed-minded and unloving. Maybe so. But are you 100% sure about that in all cases? Name the most moral person you can think of in recent history. And if I ask you that question, in your mind pops probably an image of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. That's almost everybody's answer, the most moral person that you can think of. But maybe you weren't aware that there's been a steady stream of Teresa debunkers around the Internet set on upending your high opinion of her. Did you know that? It's been led, the charge has been led by a famous and notorious atheist, the late Christopher Hitchens, and here's what he said about Teresa. Fair warning, it's very crass. He said, and I quote, while I most certainly disagree with Mother Teresa's despicable, hypocritical, and morally bankrupt worldview, the real reason I titled my book about her The Missionary Position is that I would dearly have loved to shag the wimple right off her head. Yeah, whoa, that is really crass stuff right there. Now, you could go ahead and look at his arguments, which I don't think hold water at all, but despite his arguments and his crassness about her, this is undeniable about Mother Teresa. She was a woman who held dying people, the untouchables of Calcutta, the terminally ill, those who refused medical treatment, kicked into the dirty alleys of one of the dirtiest cities in the world. She was a woman who watched them by the thousands expire in her arms as she ministered to their physical and spiritual needs. This was a woman who inspired literally thousands of people from around the world to engage in the same sort of compassionate work, and she, for 60 years, joined the poor as a volunteer to give up all the stuff she could have had being born in the rich way. That's the fact. All that living for Jesus and all that living like Jesus did not protect her from a guy like Hitchens saying that she was, quote, morally bankrupt. So friends, if someone can seriously say, dear Jesus, save me from your followers like Mother to," then where's the problem? You know, is the problem with the Christ follower, or is it the one who slanders? So we need to define bad behavior. And friend, listen, you might be here, and you've just thought this is a cool thing to jump into because um, you're kind of coming from an outside-the-church perspective, and and you've got your own uh, bad impressions of Christians, and I've got some of my own. But maybe this is a good moment for us to recalibrate our own moral compass before you lay a slanderous act. Now, maybe you're someone on the inside of that Christian fence. And, and look at you. You are someone who has wanted to walk in mercy. You really did. I mean, you wanted to walk compassionately. You can even cite examples where you befriended people who weren't like you. They have different religion. They have a different religion worldview they have different politics in you and you've accepted them into your friendship circle and you've accepted them as image bearers of a living god and your religion christianity told you that you've never locked eyes with another human being that doesn't matter infinitely to god so you love them no matter what and you believe you you live that out fallibly but you live that out and yet maybe for example there was a moment when because you think uh, sincerely that uh uh, sex has a, a natural a, a function and and an operating outside that natural function is neither healthy nor moral. Let's say you just have that opinion without any knowing anything else about you. You were immediately lumped in with the bigots and the haters. Well, friend, uh, if that is your experience, listen to Peter. What does he say? He says, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're going to live Jesus' way and you're going to be lumped in with the bigots and the haters. It's called slander, because it's a negative accusation, and it's not true. And so, friends, um, still, the question is whether you'll live that way. And Peter's adamant about this, right? Even if that comes to you, he says, choose the suffering for doing what right. like. All right, here's the second thing we need to define. Define who is a Christian. Think about this for a second. The thing about Christianity is it's really a straightforward process, you know, trying to You're you're going to become one. You confess Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, in faith. You believe he was who he said he was. You learn the doctrines of the church. You receive Christ and get baptized in his name. And so, voila, you're a Christian, right? Well, probably. I mean, I'll treat you like one for sure. I'll treat you like a brother or sister. But here's a fact. You may not be one. Right? I mean, you go through that whole thing and you may not be one. See, Christianity is beyond just... Uh, the recitation of creeds, Christianity, uh, becoming a Christian is a mysterious thing. Jesus defines it in John chapter three as a as a movement of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it's invisible and it's powerful and it's supernatural, and it takes place on the inside. That's why I can't see it and I can't judge it with one hundred percent certainty in your life. I can't. God can. Because it's invisible. Nobody can know with kind of a 100% certainty uh, whether it's happened or not in another person's life. Uh, You can say, Jesus Lord, and I'll believe you, and I'll treat you like a Christian, but maybe you're not one. Not really. And if that's the case, then that means we've opened up a category of someone who can confess Christ, claim to be in the Christian camp, and not really be in it. Now, is that legitimate? Is that a legitimate way to look at, at people? It is. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. So it it could be that the person who calls Jesus Lord, but they don't get it. And the proof quite literally, Jesus says, is in the pudding. And he'll later say this about five or six different ways. He'll talk about trees and fruit and whether the fruit matches what the tree is labeled and all that kind of stuff. So maybe In the case of somebody who is judgmental or hypocritical and mean-spirited maybe all that that means is that they do not have the spirit of god living in them maybe their lifestyle which is contrary to peter's call to be what was it be agreeable be sympathetic be loving be compassionate be humble be non retaliatory and be a blessing maybe the lack of those character qualities in their life means they're not christian even if they claim Uh, I responded to an editorial one time uh, from Western Washington University. And I, I don't know why I read their newspaper, but I was reading in the editorial section. Someone read this, wrote this. Christians have been behind every regression in knowledge in Western civilization. They encourage hatred of unbelievers, discrimination against minorities, and rebellion against the government. Now, let's just say for a second that all that's true, that Christians do do that stuff. I think it's highly arguable. Did they get that from Jesus? The Jesus who taught us to love unbelievers, to welcome uh, racial minorities, and to obey the government. I mean, these are explicit things that Jesus said. I can point to you chapter and verse. Okay? So, uh, did they get that from Jesus? No. So, is it a possibility that Christians who are behaving badly aren't followers of Jesus? Not truly. Jesus warned us. There was false teachers there will be false believers and so not everybody who wears his name is in the family it's a legitimate category ac3 paul will say it again in one of his letters at the end of a letter to a church that by the way is behaving quite badly it's a church in corinth and they're divisive and they're prideful and they're sexually kind of loose and he says to them at the end of the second letter to them he says ah you guys need to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith So again, from his master Jesus, he knew that there was a category of people who could have been baptized, confessing believers who weren't. Now you say, Rick, that's pretty convenient. Isn't that convenient? So convenient. You can just write off every instance of a Christian behaving badly, just sweep away the Inquisitions and wipe away the Crusades and just say all those people weren't really Christians well, I hope I'm not doing that. I I, I cannot sweep away every instance of a Christian behaving badly as evidence that they are not Christian. If I did, I would wipe myself out of the Christian. And it's so true that um, I have behaved badly. Uh, I give you the permission here this morning. You can interview my wife and children, and they will confirm the fact. Real Christians can and do live far below their calling, and myself included and I'm really embarrassed that your attention's on my lifestyle. So let's uh, turn our attention on to Peter for a second. Uh, so so Peter, we remember this dude, right? Lead disciple, walked and talked with Jesus for three and a half years. And in that time, if you know the story, there were some real you know, non-shining moments for the dude, all right? So you remember there was the denial thing, right? Jesus is at his absolute point of critical need. And Peter says, yeah, I don't know the guy. Yeah. I mean, that's his just shining moment right there. And then this lead disciple... There was a time that Jesus turned around and said, "Get behind me, Satan." Okay, so there was that moment. How would you like Jesus to have called you Satan? Okay, then there's another moment, and this is less well known. It comes from the book of Acts and Galatians. When we understand that there was a moment when Peter um, shunned foreigners, like he just like, "I'm not eating with you because you're not a Jew." The leader of the church, right? And then, okay, this is. This is baptized in the Holy Spirit, leader of the church, Peter engaged in a pretty stunning act of bigotry. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even touching you. I'm not eating with you because you're not one of my kind. When the gospel had explicitly said God was welcoming through the grace of Jesus, everybody, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. I mean, it was disobedience and bigotry. Just put it all, smash it all together. That was Peter, the lead disciple. So Was Peter not a real Christian? I don't think that's the answer. Had he not undergone the new birth? I don't think that's the answer. Was Jesus not the Lord of his life? I don't think that's the answer. See, we need some subtlety in understanding what kind of allowances for sin and growth should be expected in the life of every Christian. So that leads to a third thing. We've got to define three things. Define bad behavior. Um, We've got to define uh, this other thing. Uh, Who's a Christian? And then we have to define what we expect out of Christians. See, do we expect Peter to be perfect? Do we expect that his association with Jesus has now made him incapable of doing something unloving or bad? You can ask the same question about yourself. There's a lot of Christians in this room this morning. Has your association with Jesus made it impossible for you to do something bad or unloving? I mean, we'd love the answer to be yes, right? Because then the moment of conversion would be the moment of turning from imperfection to perfection. Instant. But the answer is, is unfortunately no. See, that's an interesting thing, because in the life of Peter, that actually speaks to why he came to Jesus in the first place. He came to Jesus in the first place because he felt acutely and intimately on the inside his own fallenness and wickedness. The first moment that, G- that Jesus displays his beauty and power in front of him, this is Peter's reaction. The guy who wrote the letter we're talking about. Master, he says, Luke 5, verse 8, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. Okay, that was his reaction to being around perfection. So should we be that surprised that a guy with this acute self-awareness of his own fallenness and sinfulness would still, after years of association with Jesus, sometimes sin? Well, we should not be surprised by that. you want a simple argument against Christianity, I'm going to give you one. This one's free. You ready? Here's your argument against Christianity. You find some unsatisfactory, stupid, or dogmatic Christian, and then you say, huh, here's your example of a new man. Lord, save me from such men as that. And there you go. You can wipe it all away. Christianity is false. But you see what you've engaged in there, right? That is, a, that is a very specious argument. It has really dubious premises. Oh, let me net it out for you. It goes like this You're saying if Christianity were true, every Christian would be nicer than every non Christian. That's the first premise. Every Christian is not nicer than every non Christian. Premise two. It's probably inarguable. And then, conclusion. Therefore, Christianity is false. Huh. Really? You see what you've engaged in there, right? A, a, pretty, a pretty shaky argument based on really shaky premises. How can we expect every Christian to be nicer than every non-Christian? I mean, is that a reasonable expectation? Now you say, Rick, let me push back on that. You say, Rick, if, if Christianity is real, if Christianity is all it's cracked up to be, God living in me, the hope of glory, then surely there should be some evidence of that in the, in the lives of the people who claim Christ yes there should there should be some evidence of that however let's have some subtlety when we look at that let's take two fictitious people mr furkin and miss bates just to give you two weird names miss bates is a christian and known by everyone to be rather impatient and narrow minded and anxious and then uh, mr furkin is not a christian but he's got a great reputation and everybody knows that furkin is nice and awesome okay two people now, that in and of itself, the Christian with a bad reputation and the non-Christian with a good reputation says nothing about whether Christianity is real or whether it works as clean. The real question would be this. What would Miss Bates' life be like if she were not a Christian? And what would Mr. Perkins' life be like if he was a Christian? That's the proof in the pudding. It's what difference does it make when Christianity gets operative in your life? Because you see, everybody brings different raw material to God. And so does Ms. Bates and Mr. Ferkin. Through your upbringing, through your choices, through your experiences, and through many other causes, both Ms. Bates and Mr. Furkin have been given a sort of raw material with which they come to God. And you notice, they don't bring the same raw material. Let's imagine we look into Ms. Bates' life, and there we see someone who is uh, saddled with a host of baggage from a broken home, three wrecked marriages, two unexpected deaths, and a decrepit neighborhood that she grew up in. Meanwhile, we look at Mr. Perkin and we say, I grew up in a stable home, relative affluence, in a, in a nice, stable societal structure, had a great education, and he's really smart. Okay, so that's what we got now. We got these two people as objectively measured in their starting points. Now, God, meanwhile, wants to take both of these people and turn them into restored, new children, fully alive humans, look and act like himself. And he wants to do that with both these people, but because of their different starting points, Ferkin looks better before even starting the process than Bates does while she's in the middle of the transformation process. And that's just to be expected. They had different starting points. So if you're not very agreeable, sympathetic, or kind, that is where Jesus will start. And if you're not very loving or compassionate, That's where Jesus will start. C.S. Lewis, famous Christian writer of the last century, one time had a mutual friend with another person who was known as a Christian but also engaged in some pretty terrible, uh, early bad habit and and some bad character traits. And this was mentioned by their mutual friend uh, who was complaining about this Christian. And Lewis said, you should have seen him before he became a Christian. In other words, God had, was already engaged in a grand restoration project. And if you could see the, the starting point, you would see that there was real power in operation in that person's life. Now, on the subject of expectations, let's add this one thing more. Christianity is a religion uh, that attracts the, the needy, the destitute. Think about this. Christianity is a religion of redemption. It has good news of which the first entry requirement is an acknowledgement of your poverty of spirit. That's the first entry requirement. So there's a lot of smart, put-together, and gifted folks, like all my atheist friends, who refuse to meet the first boundary condition, in part because they're so self-contained, they're so self-reliant, they're so self-assured. They are, quote, good people. There's no question. So their felt need for a religion of rescue is low. That makes sense. And maybe, God willing, they will come to a point of their need, but right now, being high performers, they don't... So that's why, from the beginning, Christianity has always attracted the simple, the humble, the broken, the wounded, the desperate, and the poor. And so is it any wonder that its members are, like Peter, sometimes more likely to start as very poor reflections of Jesus? They came to him precisely because they were least him. Let me say it again. Many Christians have come to him precisely because they were least him. And they knew they needed rest. So this brings us to a conclusion. You can trust this, friend, that God will start with you right where you're at. And so I've got two questions. We might ask, how can Christians, how can we who claim the name of Jesus be more like Peter said we should all be? Agreeable, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble, non retaliatory, and a blessing. Well, brothers and sisters, let us live up to what we have already attained because I think then the world will look in with more favor. But be warned, Peter says, you may still suffer slander and people will still call you bad men. And then second question is this, a hypocrite is one who doesn't live out what they know to be right, right? And then last time I looked, that includes all of us. And if that's true, if that's really true, then there's room inside this gracious space for every hypocrite. And so may this whole thing chase us to God's grace. God's grace for pardon for the times when we don't live up to what we're supposed to live as Christians, and God's grace to live out lives of love in a dark and broken world. Let me pray for you. God, I ask now for, the, um, for your Holy Spirit to uh, bathe this room with your kind of loving conviction that draws us to self-awareness that we didn't have before we came in the room, and thus we realize it's you and not us. And so may we be those convicted that sometimes we've perhaps been very judgmental of judgmental people. And that puts us right in the same place. And so we run to you for grace. And then may you, by your Holy Spirit, change us to be more like Jesus in a world that needs him so desperately.